Uh, in Romans chapter 12, 9, we looked at last week, Paul moved from discussing empowering the church for service with spiritual gifts to the qualities that he expects to see in our lives as we exercise those gifts. He talked about how the Spirit gifts us in order for us to minister to one another. But spiritual gifts, no matter how positive, are actually useless unless they're exercised in love. I want to read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It won't be on the screen. I'd like you to just listen as Paul combines the responsibility to love along with the responsibility to serve. Chapter 13, verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Not even 30% for trying. Without love, our spiritual gifts are nothing. So, Paul lays out the primary quality he expects to see in our lives. Love. Pilate taught last week. The dominant characteristics in the life of a Christian should be love. Love for God and love for our neighbor. Now, it's not just in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. It's really all over the Bible. So I'd like to just run through a couple of verses that amplify this idea of our responsibility to love. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, The aim of our charge is love, out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So in verse 9 that we looked at last week, Paul gives us the general principle. We are to let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So this love that Paul is talking about needs to be a genuine love. It needs to be sincere. It needs to be real. It can't be phony or hypocritical. So in the verses that follow, beginning here in verse 10, Paul gives us specifics as to what that means. He draws us a picture of what genuine love looks like. But honestly, we can't help but look at this section and think to ourselves, I just can't love like that. But just like our ability to serve must be empowered by the Holy Spirit through our spiritual gifts, so too the love that Paul calls us to is supernatural. If we in faith ask God by the power of his spirit to enable us to love each other genuinely, we can do it. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have commanded it. We can love sincerely. The church is the place where love ought to be demonstrated. So people come looking for real love. But sometimes what they find, on one hand, is a social club, or on the other hand, an encyclopedia on theology. It's up to each one of us to change that. As we, by the power of the Spirit within us, love each other genuinely. 
So as we look today at Romans 12.10, which is Paul's beginning of, of describing how to love genuinely, I'd like us to pray and ask God to help us understand and then live it. Father, we acknowledge how difficult it is to love the way you want us to live. So Lord, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would allow us to love each other in a genuine, sincere, and real way by your power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at Romans 12.10. That's our verse for today. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's the first of Paul's statements pointing specifically to our responsibility to love our Christian family, the church. Now, the word that Paul uses here in, in Romans 12.10 for love is actually a compound word made up of two of the four Greek words for love, and it's often translated, be devoted to. The first word is philia, which is the love of a friend. Philia means a deep and committed friendship. A, a philos was the guy, the friend of the groom who helped him take care of all of the details for the wedding. In other words, the, the best man, his closest friend. You might think of it in the way as you're answering the security question on a website to, as you log in, you know, the name of your closest childhood friend. For me, it's the same guy all the time. We've been friends for 56 years. He's my philos. The second Greek word is storgos. That's the love and affection between family members. It's a natural love. It's not induced by desire or by beauty or by an attractive personality. It's, it's the natural love that occurs within a family. This, this kind of, of love represents a common bond that stretches beyond culture, beyond circumstances, beyond time and place. And even if we have no history together, even if we don't have the same likes and dislikes, there is a natural affection because we're the family of God. So the church should be marked by a natural love that we share with all Christians, each of us divinely adopted by God, each of us serving him together. We have been born into the same spiritual family through adoption. We have the same heavenly father. We serve the same savior, our Lord Jesus. We will share eternal life together on account of Jesus' blood. We are blood because of the blood of Christ. And that makes us family. One of the practical applications of what we've been learning in Romans 1 through 11 is that we are to love and be devoted to the family of God. And this love should be as, as natural and as normal as the love between family members and best friends. Well, the next part of the verse takes this love up to even a higher level. It says that this love should be with brotherly affection. Now, the word for brotherly affection is actually the Greek word Philadelphia. And it combines the word philia, love, with adelphos, brother. Brotherly love. John MacArthur in his commentary uh, says if we really wanted to translate this verse accurately, he said we should say 
be lovingly loving to one another with loving love. <laughs> That's how important this is to Paul. That's the kind of level that we need to have our love rise to. And in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says this, Now concerning brotherly love, Philadelphia, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. In other words, God has taught us by example how to have brotherly love by first loving us. Because we have received Christ's love, we can be devoted to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can be devoted to Philadelphia, brotherly love, and Storgos, family love, because he first loved us. Being loved by God should manifest itself in our love and our service to one another. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, John says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see how these verses take our loving of each other, of the family of God, even to a higher level. Higher than our love for our old friends. Higher than our love for our neighbors. Higher than our love for our co-workers. In fact, it takes it up even higher than our love for our blood relatives. In Mark chapter 3, uh, verse 30 through 33, Jesus is told that his mother and brothers have come to see him. And his disciples expected him to stop everything to go see them. And, and Jesus responded by saying, who are my mother and brothers? Those who do the will of my Father. See, as the family of God, our love for each other has to be risen to that kind of level. And it can be done because we've received God's love in Christ. We are to be channels of that love, not receptacles. We're not to hold on to it, say, oh, God, thank you so much for loving me. I'm just going to hold on to it. But it needs to pass through us to others. And Jesus, of course, is the perfect example of that. In John chapter 15, verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That love that Jesus has shared with the Father from all eternity, when, when the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, that love that Jesus shares with the Father, he passes right on to us. And then he asks us to go ahead and pass it on to others. Now, the rest of that verse, verse 10, tells us one of the ways that we can express that love. Paul says that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. Along with serving each other, one of the ways that we can demonstrate love to each other is that we give preference to one another in honor. Now, to honor someone is to put oneself aside in order to acknowledge and recognize the position of another. To honor is to give up your self-centeredness for the benefit of the others, it is to humble ourselves for the sake of others. Now, what this verse does is it defines healthy competition within the church. It sh if we are going to compete in any way as the church, it should be in outdoing one another, in showing each other honor. 
In, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. So as we serve each other, one of the goals is to esteem one another, to lift another up, to recognize them. So when Paul says that we are to outdo one another, he means that we should lead the way. That we should be the first in bringing honor to another. That we shouldn't wait for someone else to honor us and then we'll go ahead and reciprocate. We have to take the initiative to honor the people God has placed in our lives. Can you imagine what kind of marriage relationships we would have in the church if wives in an effort to outdo their husbands in honor respected them? And if husbands said, there's no way she's going to outdo me, I am going to honor her first and foremost by loving her the way Christ loved the church. We put poor Curtis Field, our counseling pastor, out of business. There are opportunities all over the place for us to love and honor each other. But you know what? It's kind of hard to see if we're only focused on ourselves. So we're to look around. We're to look for opportunities to love and honor one another. And then when we see it, we're to jump on it. We're to take advantage of the opportunity to love, to serve, to honor our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we do that, we are expressing genuine love and real humility. You see, humility and love are inseparable. Humility and love are both action words. They're not just feelings. Humility is active. It, it actually goes and places oneself lower than another in order to lift that person up. It's the opposite of pride which manifests itself whenever we try to elevate ourselves above someone else. So rather than bringing attention to ourselves, we should desire that others get the credit. In fact, uh, in the J.B. Phillips translation of this verse, it says, be willing to let other men have the credit. If you really don't care who gets the credit, then you can just enjoy yourself by serving wherever you see a need and then just be glad that it gets done and not worry about who gets the credit. President Ronald Reagan had this saying on his desk in the Oval Office. There is no limit to how far you can go if you don't care who gets the credit. You see, honoring another is a real practical way that we can demonstrate that we love them even as we love them the way we love ourselves. Because here's the deal. If we're really honest, we'll admit that this is really difficult because it goes against every fiber of our earthly, worldly, self-centered selves that constantly wants to scream out, what about me? We're always eager to be acknowledged, to be recognized, to be promoted. In fact, most of us will get angry if someone else is honored instead of us. I, I have to share with you a story that's been weighing on me for almost 30 years. Um, back uh, in my early 30s, I, I played in an um, over-30 hockey league in Boston. And uh, it was supposed to be a no-check league, but it actually really wasn't. Um, but 
um, we had a really bad team, and I was not really one of the better players. In fact, that whole season, we hadn't won a single game. Um, we were at the last game of the year. Uh, we were actually tied. It was, it was so exciting. It was just, just seconds to go. I was on the ice. One of our defensemen fired a beautiful slap shot, and I just happened to have my stick on the ice. Believe me, I didn't move it. It just happened to be there. The puck just nicked my stick, changed directions just enough, into the goal. We won the game. Okay? Everybody on the team, everybody on the bench jumps over and runs to him. I drop my stick. I skate over. That was me. That was my goal. I'm the one who scored. They all looked at me like, come on. See, that's just the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. Envy and jealousy are the exact opposite of love and honor. In fact, Proverbs 27.4 says, Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Of these three negative emotions... Anger, fury, and jealousy. Jealousy is listed as the most powerful. Jealousy will make us, things, make us do things we never intended to do. Jealousy will always breed the worst form of anger. And, and what's worse is that jealousy typically manifests itself in those who are closest to us. In our family, with our friends, with the people we worship with, with the guys on our team. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, you will find the, the poison that jealousy brings in relationships. All the way back to Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel bring a, a sacrifice to God. God accepts Abel's sacrifice and does not accept Cain's. And Cain, rather than being happy for his brother, really, rather than learning from what his brother did, he becomes jealous of him and he kills his brother. Because of jealousy. In Genesis chapter 37, we're introduced to Joseph, the 11th of 12 Jacob's sons. Joseph is already experiencing the pain of jealousy because he is his father's favorite and his older brothers know that. And then God gives Joseph these two incredible dreams that basically say that his brothers and even his parents are going to bow down to him. And rather than being like Mary, who received this incredible news from God and, and stored it up in her heart, Joseph went to his brothers and his brothers and said, Hey, guess what? You, you guys are going to honor me. How great is that? Well, the brothers didn't think it was very great. It exacerbated their jealousy to the point where they decided to kill him and eventually sold him into slavery. When, when King Saul had brought David into his court, uh, he was thrilled with who David was. But as David's popularity began to increase, Saul's jealousy towards David began to increase. Until one point when they were coming back from battle and the women were singing, Saul kills his thousands, but David kills his ten thousands. Well, that was all for Saul. At that point, his jealousy clouded his judgment completely. And in fact, the very next day, when David was playing the harp in order to soothe Saul's pain, Saul took a spear and tried to kill David with it. See, jealousy blocks out all the good 
that another person might be doing. Jealousy clouds our judgment. It clouded Saul to such an extent that as he was chasing David, he came to a city called Nob where the priests lived and their families. And he tried to get information from those priests as to where David was. And even though they didn't know, he didn't believe them. So Saul killed 85 priests, their wife, their wives, their children, and all of their livestock. And worst of all, Jesus' crucifixion was instigated by the jealousy of the religious leaders of his day. There is no place or reason for jealousy and envy in the Christian family. God puts us in a particular place and gives us particular gifts. We are each important. We are all necessary. And we will all receive rewards based on those gifts we received and the faithfulness with which we use them and nothing to do with anyone else. The root of jealousy is always fear. Fear that we'll lose something that we have. Fear that we won't get what we think we deserve. But we don't have to be afraid. The Bible tells us that perfect love casts out fear. So God's perfect love for us can cast out any fear that would lead to jealousy of, of another Christian. We can rest in his love and not be afraid to lift someone up, to honor them, to love them. As many bad examples as there are, there are some great examples of love and honor in the Old Testament. I'd like to share with you uh, the story of, of Jonathan, Saul's son, and how he loved David. Now, the, the, the first recorded interaction between the two of them was in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, David had just returned from killing Goliath. Saul brought him in to the court and was questioning him. And as they discussed whatever they were talking about, the Bible says that Jonathan was attracted to David, that there was something in that conversation that impressed Jonathan about David. They probably already knew each other because David had been around Saul's court before, but the Bible doesn't tell us what it was that caused Jonathan to feel this way about David. But let me read for you from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt." So this passage tells us that Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan was connected to David. And it's a picture of, of tying two cords together. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, where God says to, to, to bind the word around your hand and around your forehead, the tefillim that he, that he talks about. 
it, it should be so connected to you that that word is just absorbed into you, that, that you become one with it. And that's what we see here in David and Jonathan as they are bound together and inseparably. Now what's amazing here is that Jonathan is a godly and courageous man, fully capable to assume the responsibilities of king of Israel. He is next in line. He is Saul's oldest son, and he has proven himself in battle to be faithful and to be brave and to be prepared to be the next king. But Jonathan recognized that David was the man that God had chosen to be Israel's next king. So Jonathan is more than happy to relinquish his hopes for his father's throne in deference to the man who would become his friend. Jonathan, secure in God's love for him, wanted to help David be all that God had for him. And as we said, love is an action word. So Jonathan gives David a visible sign of his love in a clear demonstration of outdoing David in honor. Jonathan gives him his royal robe, his belt, his sword, his bow, all symbolically transferring to David his status as the next king of Israel. Jonathan had nothing to gain by this gesture and everything to lose. He could have viewed David as his rival. Instead, because he loved David, because his heart was united with David, he was able to honor him. Jonathan's love for David allowed him to show it by elevating David above himself. Listen to this. Rather than be king and be served, Jonathan was willing to serve David. He wanted what was best for his friend because he loved him. Jonathan showed David honor by his willingness to make him successful even at his own expense. David never had anything that Jonathan had. Jonathan was a prince. David was a poor shepherd boy. But Jonathan brought himself down from his high position and got below David and lifted him up in order to make him successful. Uh, maybe a... a present illustration might be if you're a, a manager in your company and you have someone who attends church with you, a, a fellow Christian that works for you, and the vice president of the company comes to you and says, we're going to create a new level of management, uh, a general manager uh, that you're going to report to, and, and the gentleman that we're um, considering for the position is this guy that works for you. We're going to put him up above you. The fulfillment of this verse is that you would do everything possible to help him get that position. That you would do whatever it took to get down and bring him up so that he would be successful even though you'll be reporting to him. That's exactly what Jonathan did and that's what we are called to do. That is Romans 12 in action. I was thinking of a, another illustration that I thought would be contemporary and then I realized it's almost 50 years ago. Um, <laughs> But one of my favorite movies of all time, first movie I ever cried, Brian's Song. Uh, Brian Piccolo and Gail Sears are running backs in the 1960s for the Chicago Bears. 
Gale Sears is by far and away the best running back in all of professional football. He is unbelievable. Halfway through the season, he tears his knee up. I mean, MCL, ACL, just blown out. And back then, there was not the technology that they have today. They couldn't repair the knee the way they do today. So it was questionable whether or not Sears would ever play again. Piccolo steps into the starting role and is wildly successful. He has an incredible season. He is clearly a top flight running back and could be the starter for any team in the league. Well, when Gail Sears gets to the place where he can start rehabbing his knee, the first guy to start working with him is Brian Piccolo. Brian Piccolo pushes Sears to get back to the place that he was, even though he knew that if Sears got back to that place, he would be relegated back to a backup role rather than a starter. But it didn't matter because he loved Gail Sears and he wanted to do whatever he could to make him successful. That's Romans 12 in action. When Barnabas was the main leader of the church in Jerusalem, uh, a, a man by the name of uh, Saul, who was then called Paul, was taken under Barnabas's wing. And as they traveled together and as they worked together, it became evident that Paul would be the man that God had chosen to lead the church. And Barnabas graciously stepped aside and allowed Saul to rise up and be the man that God had him to be. And Barnabas did everything he could to bring, Saul to that, to bring Paul to that place. That's Romans 12 in action. When John the Baptist was, was baptizing people in the Jordan River and, and speaking, people were coming to him all over. Crowds were coming, flocking to him. But then he heard that Jesus had started baptizing and people were starting to go to him. And rather than being jealous, John compares himself to the philos, to the best man, who's just rejoicing that the groom has come. And he summed up his position in this very simple sentence. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. See, that's just the way Jonathan was. He was prepared to give up his rights for the sake of the one whom he loved the one whom God had anointed as the future king of Israel because he loved him. Jonathan preferred elevating David to honor more than he enjoyed being honored himself, even though he was due much honor. You see, when we honor someone by becoming their servant, we treat them exactly as Christ has treated us. And for Jonathan, it even became more difficult because he wanted to honor his father. He knew that God had required him to honor his father. And even though his father was trying to kill David, he did everything he could to honor him while trying to protect David. Jonathan found himself in an incredibly difficult place, yet he sacrificially loved both his father and David. He understood that genuine love is sacrificial. And when we love people sacrificially, when we honor them above ourselves, when we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not only fulfilling Romans 10, but we are truly fulfilling the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, 
with all our soul, with all our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, loving God, of course, is the highest priority. But honestly, that, that's invisible. That comes from the passion within our soul. But loving others, especially the family of God, is the outward manifestation and visible expression of our love for God. It's not that loving God is less important, but loving God is made visible and real when we visibly, sacrificially, and practically love our Christian brothers and sisters. When we create this kind of community, we're loving, humble, affectionate, respectful relationships are occurring, then the hurting, lonely world can't help but be drawn to Jesus Christ the way Jonathan was drawn to David. It could be that the greatest opportunity we have for evangelism in the 21st century revolves around the pain people are experiencing from their emotional isolation caused by social media. You might have Thousands of Facebook friends, but have no idea how to have a real, loving relationship. But we can show them. We can show them what real love looks like. We can show them what genuine love looks like. And when they see that, they will see Jesus. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, By this, people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I can't think of anything that's more attractive to the average person out there than a community of believers who enter into healthy, rewarding relationships with one another. And when that happens, the world will take notice of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By sacrificially loving and committing to one another, we can be the kind of church that not only attracts people, but that benefits from those kinds of relationships. Those who don't know Jesus can see his life through our love for each other. It is our ability to love one another that is the radical force that Jesus has let loose upon this world through his resurrection. Now we might be thinking, I, I, I can't do it. I can't love them like that. I don't even like them. But, but honestly, that doesn't matter because it is a command of God and since when is God's commands doable in our own power? With man, it is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. When we prayerfully ask him, he will empower us to love genuinely. And then when we ask him for opportunities to demonstrate that love by honoring one another, he will provide those opportunities for us, and then we need to jump on them. Now, Paul doesn't tell us to do this because of the hope that the people we are loving and caring for are going to get it right all the time. He doesn't tell us to do this because they're not going to let us down. He, he doesn't even tell us to do this because we're going to get love back. Then it would be about us. No, he tells us to do it because of the love that we've received in Christ. And he tells us to do it by the spirit that he's given us. In 1979... Uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates made an unlikely run for the championship of professional baseball. And they actually won the World Series. Well, well during that run, they incorporated as their theme song, a uh, song by Sister Sledge called We Are Family. And the whole city, in fact, all of western Pennsylvania, came together as family 
to support the Pittsburgh Pirates. It didn't matter if you were black or white. It didn't matter if you were old or young. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor. And you were a Pirates fan, and because of that, you were family. It swept through the whole area. We are the spiritual family of God. It took a baseball team to win a few games to get people to act like they loved each other. The creator king of the universe has served us by giving his very life for us, by paying the penalty for our sin on the cross of Calvary, by raising from the dead so that we can have eternal life and be in relationship with him forever. And all he asks from us is that we treat each other like family, is that we love each other the way he has loved us. Look, the way the people of Pittsburgh identified themselves as family was they, were, they wore a, a, a gold shirt that said, it's black letters, we are family. The thing that identifies us as the family of God, the badge that we wear, is love. And Paul says it needs to be a genuine love. It needs to be humble. It needs to be selfless. It needs to seek out the needs of others and not worrying about recognition for oneself. Genuine love never acts in a way that would place a burden of indebtedness on the recipient. It never makes them feel that they have to pay that love back. In fact, it, it leaves them with the desire to pass that love on. After Jonathan was killed in battle, right next to his father, David brought Jonathan's son, the only surviving son. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was, was a cripple, but yet he was still a threat to David's throne. It was traditional in those days for, for many, many, many years for a new king that came from a different family to wipe out the family of the previous king. It would have been normal for David to have killed Mephibosheth. But instead, because of the love that he had received with, from Jonathan, he was able to take that love and pass it on to Jonathan's son. See, we have a great opportunity to demonstrate that we are loved by God as we love and honor each other. Let's go from here and, and make an unequivocal commitment to love and honor each other as family. We do it for our sake, but also for the sake of a watching world who's in desperate need of those kinds of relationships. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we recognize how difficult it is to love the way you call us to love. But yet we are so thankful that you give us your spirit that allows us to do that. Lord, may each one of us commit to leave here today to demonstrate that love to one another by honoring, by serving, by caring for each other. Not only for their benefit, but for the benefit of a watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.